I remember a dream I had when I was maybe 10 or 12 years old. I was waiting in line on a path towards a big building, sort of like a stadium or amphitheater. And it was going to be a test that would determine my eternal fate. I would go to heaven or hell, depending on what happened at the front of that line. And as I got to the front of the line, I discovered that I was standing at the base of this big bowl, like a stadium or amphitheater, with my back to it. And I was to hold a big heavy ball, something like a croquet ball or a billiard ball, and then toss it up behind me to land in this big bowl-shaped building, where it would land in a kind of maze and make its way down to the bottom Something like those old Plinko games they used to play on The Price is Right. And wherever it landed at the bottom, that's where I would go. I was frightened in the dream. And I was angry. How could it be that my eternal fate, the most important moment of my existence, was going to come down to this stupid game? to this completely arbitrary choice. It was unfair. It was scary. I got to the front of the line. I got ready to toss the ball. And then I woke up. It was an intense dream. And something about it stayed with me to the point that it's one of the five or six dreams I can remember from childhood. And I suppose it's no wonder. No matter what faith tradition or non-faith tradition you grew up with, our culture exposes pretty much everybody pretty early on to the idea that there might be after this life some kind of stark choice between heaven and hell. And that what you do in this life determines the outcome, so you better get it right. Probably many of us have spent some time contemplating that possibility, not without a degree of fear. Our gospel passage from today has nourished some of that contemplation and maybe some of that fear over the centuries. This gospel passage is actually one of the only sources in scripture for some of the familiar details that we're used to. The stark division between two sides of the afterlife with a chasm in between, the torment in flames. There are others, but this is one of them, and there are not too many passages. And maybe there's some good in some of that fear. Maybe it's a holy fear if it leads people to practice compassion before they die, so as to try to not end up like that rich man. Imagine being trapped in torment on the far side of an unbridgeable chasm. And yet I'm not sure that this parable can bear the weight that we might try to place upon it. I'm not sure we're meant to look to this parable for precise details about the arrangements we should expect in the afterlife. 
so much as to confront us with what God's priorities are for us and for who God wants us to be shaped into in this life. This is a parable. And in telling it, Jesus reaches for conventional images of Hades, of afterlife, that are current in his time, much as they are in ours. But what he does with them is spin characters, characters we need to pay attention to. At the very least, if this parable is meant to teach us just how to get into heaven and stay out of hell, its instructions could be clearer. Neither Lazarus nor the rich man does anything conventionally Christian. We don't see them get baptized or pray a sinner's prayer or accept Jesus Christ as their personal Lord and Savior. The rich man, we might notice, doesn't seem to do anything overtly evil. We're not told that he cheated his way into his wealth. We're not told that he gives Lazarus a kick as he walks by. It's what he fails to do for Lazarus. His self-indulgent enjoyment of his riches and his ability to ignore the need of his neighbor seem to be enough to disqualify him. Neither does Lazarus do anything overtly good. Actually, in the entire parable, Lazarus remains remarkably passive. We don't hear any words from his voice. We see bad things happen to him on earth, and good things happen to him in the arms of Abraham. I believe there is some comfort here in this parable for those whose experience in this life is something like Lazarus, for those whose agency is taken from them, for those without a voice, for those who are ignored. Yes, there's comfort here in this parable. But to tell the truth, I believe the intended audience of this parable is mostly those who can identify with the rich man. Those, as we heard in Paul's letter earlier, who have a roof over their head and food to eat and clothing and should be contented with these, which in 21st century North America is many of us. And it is the rich man whose point of view the story follows. And it's the rich man who is the most fleshed out character. It's the rich man that Abraham speaks with across the gap. And so I think Jesus intended this parable primarily for the benefit of those who might identify with the rich man. And there are some things that we should notice about him. One thing is that he has not actually completely failed to notice Lazarus during his earthly life. We know that because when he sees him in heaven, he knows his name. And so this is not about obliviousness. This is about a man who knows who Lazarus is and has a very clear sense of his role in life, or to put it better, has a very clear sense of Lazarus's role in his life, the rich man's life. Because as he talks to Abraham very politely and deferentially, the first thing he asks is for Abraham to send Lazarus as an errand boy to help the rich man. Send Lazarus to come cool off my tongue by dipping his finger in water. 
Lazarus is still the help in his mind. And even after Abraham says no and points out that Lazarus is now in fact enjoying his richly deserved reward, then the rich man asks again for Abraham to send him on an errand, this time to go warn the rich man's brothers. So the rich man's problem isn't that he was unaware of Lazarus's existence. He is all too aware. And it's not just that he fails to throw Lazarus a crust or show him a little kindness. It's that he fails to recognize him as a fellow human being with his own dignity and his own autonomy and his own story. Even in Hades, this rich man still sees Lazarus as a supporting character in his own story. Somebody whose station and whose purpose is to serve. Maybe you know the famous hymn, All Things Bright and Beautiful. We often sing it at St. Francis Day. Maybe we'll sing it in a couple weeks at the blessing of animals. And it's a lovely hymn, if a little on the treacly sweet side. Each little flower that opens, each little bird that sings, God made their golden colors, he made their tiny wings. It's cute, right? We have this hymn in our hymnal, but we often, we never, we don't often sing, in fact, we never sing the original third verse. And nobody does, because it's not printed in our hymnal or any other hymnal anymore. The original verse three goes, the rich man in his castle, the poor man at the gate, God made them high and lowly and ordered their estate. Now that hymn was written by Cecil Francis Alexander, who was an Anglican woman and a member of the English upper class, the colonial class living in Ireland in the mid 1800s. And by all accounts, Mrs. Alexander was a devoted visitor of the sick and a dedicated contributor to charitable causes. And I don't imagine that she is currently spending all eternity in fiery torment. But I do believe she read this story about the rich man and Lazarus. She wrote this hymn with it clearly in mind, with its detail about the poor man at the gate, which comes straight from this story, and utterly missed the point of the entire parable. <laughs> which is not that God creates some people to be wealthy and others to serve, and that's good, and it will all come right in the end when they get their eternal reward. But that God is completely on the side of those who suffer unjustly. And that when we, like this rich man, when we build walls between ourselves and our neighbor, what we will find that we have instead done is dug a chasm between ourselves and God. I said earlier that I don't think this parable is intended to give us precise detailed information about the configuration of the afterlife. And I'll add 
that I'm not completely convinced there's no hope for the rich man in this parable still. Although I suspect he may still have to spend a century or two in his self-contained torment. But after all, at least Abraham is still willing to at least speak with him. And even in this first conversation, I like to imagine that maybe there is a glimmer of charity beginning to stir in his self-absorbed soul. As his compassion extends at least to his five brothers, as he finds himself wishing they could have a warning. It's not much of a start. It's only those he is already close to, his cronies, his bros. But maybe it's the beginning of a small move beyond himself. And so I wonder what will happen for this rich man. I wonder what will happen when Holy Saturday comes around. When Jesus descends into Hades, storms across the unbridgeable chasm, beats down the gates of hell, and shows up looking for all the world exactly like Lazarus. Will the rich man know him? Will we?